Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. The failure to indict Louisville police officers in the murder of Breonna Taylor and the arrest instead of those protesting police killings proves once again that there are two systems of justice in the U.S., one for cops and one for everyone else. For Breonna Taylor, her murderers walk free. For Daniel Prude, his murderers walk free. For Elijah McClain, his murderers walk free. I mean, over and over again, that's what we see. But the weight of the state is being brought without hesitation against people who are standing up for justice. And whether the target is historian Howard Zinn, the New York Times 1619 Project, or Julian Assange, the Trump administration and corporate media are working overtime for the right to keep the public miseducated and misinformed. If they are successful in charging him with espionage, this, of course, undermines the very precepts of investigative journalism. In other words, Woodward and Bernstein would have gone to jail for Watergate. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, with more than 200,000 Americans dead from coronavirus and millions more suffering economically because of the fallout, there is still no national plan to address either the medical or fiscal crisis. And this week, both these urgent issues were further eclipsed by the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. As some Republican senators said, they may leave and take an extended recess without voting on more coronavirus relief already passed by the House. For their weekly Moral Mondays action, the Poor People's Campaign organized a car caravan to the D.C. home of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. At the same time, there was an online rally kicked off by co-chair of the organization, the Reverend William Barber. McConnell? will not vote on a stimulus plan to save lives. Think about that now. Will not vote on a stimulus plan to save lives. Will not vote to guarantee people health care and living wages and protection of their water and their mortgages. Will not vote. He said he wasn't going to vote unless he could guarantee that his corporate friends didn't have to face legal liability for not treating people right. He wasn't going to vote till he got billions of more dollars to to tax cuts and a a multi-billion dollar airplane. He will not vote on a stimulus to save life. But before our sister is buried, and even even resting in her grave, he announced that he wants to vote on the Supreme Court. See, it ought to give us the kind of righteous indignation. And don't tell me not to be angry, but there ought to be an eternal anger, an eternal discontent with with greed and with injustice. An additional 1.5 million Americans filed for unemployment benefits for the week ending September 19th, and more than 20 million people across the U.S. are going hungry. Hundreds of protesters rallied on Black Lives Matter Plaza near the White House and then marched on throughout the district on Wednesday night following the decision of a Kentucky grand jury to not indict any Louisville police officers in connection with the murder of Breonna Taylor, an emergency medical technician shot in her home in March. 
The jury decision set off a fresh wave of protests in D.C. and around the country. We cannot be- become weary and become tired of being out here. We have to keep the pressure because we understand that this, 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 is, not, this is not a moment, but this is a movement. This is not a race, but it's a marathon. And, it, and if we are committed, if we strategize, if we organize, if we educate, we can win. As protests for Breonna Taylor continued around the country for a second day, three Denver area Black Lives Matter activists, Joel Northam, Eliza Lucero, and Lillian House, were released on bond after being swept up in a September 17th raid targeting activists. They were jailed in hazardous conditions for a week without being given the opportunity for a hearing. Over the past seven days, thousands of people have signed a petition, participated in solidarity rallies across the country, and added their names to an open letter of support calling for charges to be dropped against the activists who are all leaders in the movement seeking justice for Elijah McLean, a massage therapist brutally murdered by the police in Aurora, Colorado last year. More on the case later in the show. September 21st of this week was also International Day of Peace. Chantel James attended a virtual program and filed this report. Commemorating the International Day of Peace as declared by the United Nations, Hope Out Loud held a conversation between Dr. Vijay Prashad and Dr. Gerald Horn. In a discussion titled, Moving Money from the Military to Meet Human Needs, Demanding Candidates Confront the U.S. Military Budget, The scholars talked about the imperative of movement building against militarism, particularly in the context of these times. They highlighted the need to organize in order to call for military spending to be diverted in ways that sustain communities. Prashad talked about the need for the movement to stand against possible conflict with China and talked about the kind of peaceful world we must envision and work towards. What it's really about is this attack on the fact that the Chinese have been able to go beyond the United States in in high tech and they want to put them back into their borders. They want to put the genie back in the bottle. I'm afraid it's not going to happen. And that's why it's quite a dangerous situation. There was a Harvard University study recently which showed that the Chinese population has a high regard for the Communist Party. It also showed, I think, something that the the agents of color revolution will probably be uh, disappointed by, but it showed that, you know, the population simply doesn't want to see what happened to the USSR. When it collapsed, there was chaos and standards of living collapsed. And so they don't want a repeat of that. There's no appetite for regime change inside China, which leaves the United States with very few weapons in its quiver. And I mean that um, exactly, that uh, an armed conflict is perhaps the only thing that the U.S. government has, whether it's going, it's Trump or maybe Biden or whoever, they're going to push the same kind of policy. And it's a very dangerous policy. This is the International Day of Peace. Uh, we've come here to pledge ourselves to peace. We want um, military budgets to be used like the Cubans have done 
for good, not for ill. We salute the Cuban doctors and say, I hope they win the Nobel Prize this year. Uh, it would be a huge boost to humanity. We want that kind of world. We don't want to live in a world where you have aircraft carriers, uh, you know, swimming along in the South China Sea, creating danger, dangerous situation, not for the ordinary citizenry, uh, but for the Silicon Valley elite class. Uh, it's a dangerous time, friends. And, and I very much hope that uh, you're all seized of the urgency of this. Uh, yes, let's convert the military into peaceful means. But first, let's stop them from taking the world to another catastrophic war. Prashad also cautioned against the fracturing of the left and encouraged movements fighting for a humane world, whether they be anti-war or focused on economic or environmental justice, to join together to form integrated coalitions rather than siloing their efforts. From Northeast DC, this is Chantal James. In culture and media, the 16th annual DC Jazz Fest will be streaming live through Monday, September 28th, free at fans.com and on Facebook, as well as with other special content on Gather by Events DC. More information and a schedule of artists performing are available at dcjazzfest.org. In history this week, on September 21st, 1949, triumphant Chinese communist leaders proclaimed the People's Republic of China, marking the end of more than 20 years of civil war between communist and nationalist forces, with an interval of jointly fighting Japanese imperial troops. Some of the defeated nationalists retreated to Taiwan, where they remain to this day. On September 21, 1976, Orlando Letelier, former minister in Salvador Allende's socialist government in Chile, who was forced into exile after the U.S.-backed coup that brought General Augusto Pinochet into power, was assassinated by a car bomb planted by Chilean Secret Service agents while passing Sheridan Circle on Massachusetts Avenue, Embassy Row in Washington, D.C. On September 27, 1962, Silent Spring by Rachel Carson was published. The book exposed the devastating impact of widespread and uncontrolled pesticide use on the environment. Utilizing her many sources in federal science and in private research, Carson spent more than six years documenting her analysis that humans were misusing powerful, persistent chemical pesticides before knowing the full extent of their potential harm. She identified human hubris and financial self-interest as the crux of the problem. In response, Carson was vilified by the chemical industry and their allies in the media and government, but her work laid the groundwork to help spark the modern environmental movement. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Avera. And for more on attacks on protesters, I'm turning to a legal analyst this week, Mara Rahayden Hilliard, a human rights and constitutional rights attorney who is executive director of the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund. The fund has won many legal victories for the rights of protest movements, including exposing government spying on the Occupy movement, defeating proposed rules by the Trump administration, which would have effectively banned demonstrations here in D.C. on the National Mall or on other federal properties. And some of my D.C. listeners might remember that the fund filed the successful lawsuit challenging a military-style checkpoint program in the predominantly black neighborhood of Trinidad. Welcome to On the Ground, Mara. Hi, I'm glad to be with you. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, let's start with social justice organizers in the Denver area. Last week, we reported on their arrests and charges, including a variety of felonies and misdemeanors, all because they were leaders in demanding justice for Elijah McLean, the 23-year-old massage therapist who was brutally murdered by police officers in Aurora, Colorado last year. And as we just mentioned uh, before our segment, three of these organizers were released on bond Thursday, but still face a mountain of charges that they believe are trumped up, including kidnapping for when protesters surrounded a police precinct. So it seems that these arrests are a real ratcheting up of criminalizing of protest and protesters. And I'm just comparing to what's happening here in D.C., where protesters have been kettled along with journalists and legal monitors. And kettling is supposed to be illegal. Their phones have been seized and not returned. I also thought about federal agents assaulting protesters in Portland and kidnapping them off the street into unmarked cars. So just start by telling us what you can about the cases of these activists in Colorado and how these cases fit into this broader pattern to thwart the protest movement and organizers. Well, without question, we can see all across the United States that there is a concerted effort to try and shut down, silence, punish, disrupt the racial justice movement. But we can also see that those efforts coming from both state and federal authorities are not working. In Denver, last week, as you said, there was this extraordinary sweep and crackdown on social justice organizers, on people who had been leading the large demonstrations demanding justice for Elijah McClain. And the police conducted these arrests with a SWAT raid, with having multi-police cars surround and snatch operations against people who were, one person was in a Home Depot parking lot, another person was traveling down a public street. The SWAT raid was extraordinary. They had a military tank outside. They were smashing on someone's door. It sounded like they were going to break it in. They were refusing to show an arrest warrant. and. The people that they arrested, who they then held for seven days, some of the people were were released not long after the arrest, but three of the organizers were held for seven days in a complete violation of their due process rights. The police and the district attorney refused to bring them before a judge. They refused to give them bond hearings. They were held on no bond holds. They were finally released on late Thursday. And the charges against these people are absurd, but extremely threatening 
They have been charged with multiple felony accounts, including, as you mentioned, felony kidnapping. The kidnapping is alleged to be the fact that they held a demonstration outside a police precinct. The organizers who were being charged with kidnapping were peaceful demonstrators. They issued demands saying that they were demanding that the police who killed Elijah McLean be fired. The probable cause affidavit actually points to the fact that they made the demands, that they demanded these police officers be fired, coupled with the fact that they were outside the police precinct as kidnapping, saying that the police inside the precinct were too afraid to leave, even though they could have gone out through their parking lot door, apparently. And they charged them also with uh, inciting a riot because one of the lead organizers was on the phone with the chief of police who called her during the protest, and she broadcast that call uh, on, uh, over the uh, public sound system in which she told the police chief that they were not going in the building uh, but that they were insisting that the police officers be fired. So you can see from these types of charges, there's multiple felony counts. Um, they, while they were released Thursday, they're being called back for a, a hearing next week, and they're mounting a very strong defense in opposition. And there, too, is a complete conflict of interest because the district attorney, District Attorney Dave Young, who is using his authority, his prosecutorial authority to arrest and prosecute them, they have been demonstrating directly against him for his refusal to charge the officers who killed Elijah McClain. So he's now turned around and arrested the very people who are demonstrating against him in an overt attempt to silence them in a complete conflict of interest and abuse of his prosecutorial authority. That just reminded me because this week we've witnessed the failure of the Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron to secure an indictment in the murder of Breonna Taylor. And so many legal experts saying not only was there enough evidence and questions in the case to be heard by a, a real trial jury, but it again showed the double standard that exists for how grand juries operate, especially when it comes to prosecutors like that handling cases involving their partners in the police department. So are protesters against police violence subject to the same double standard of the grand jury process and, as you just mentioned, to the double standard of how they're treated by the prosecutor? Right, and here they didn't call a grand jury. The prosecutor and the police worked up this probable cause affidavit, which is like a kitchen sink of different images and different people, some of whom are alleged to have done things and were not arrested. And of course, there's real questions about agent provocateurs as well. Mm. And for Breonna Taylor, her murderers walk free. For Daniel Prude, his murderers walk free. For Elijah McLean, his murderers walk free. I mean, over and over again, that's what we see. But the weight of the state is being brought without hesitation against people who are standing up for justice and who are fighting for racial justice, for civil rights, demanding accountability. There's no hesitation there. And, you know, even on the bond hearing that was going on on Thursday, which I was um, listening into, you could hear the DA, the lawyer from the DA's office, demanding these $20,000 bonds for these three people, for Joel Northam, for Eliza Lucero, for Lillian House, these three organizers and activists in Denver who are being targeted, 
were completely peaceful organizers. And yet, you know, there's no similar effort at all for uh, agents of the state who take out their guns and kill people. Hmm. So I'm thinking about the ways that uh, these charges can set a precedent to criminalize protesters and organizers. We already mentioned the kidnapping charge. And I've been really thinking about how, you know, whether these types of charges, obviously they're very serious, but I'm wondering if these people bringing these charges really believe them, or is this just a way to tie people up in court, you know, ruin their life, intimidate them and keep them from organizing. And are are you seeing that uh, these types of charges are in effect um, violating someone's First and Fourth Amendment rights because you're basically keeping them from speaking and and you're seizing them under really false pretenses. These arrests are violative of fundamental constitutional rights and they do violate the Fourth Amendment as illegal seizures and they violate the First Amendment as acts that extinguish or attempt to extinguish free speech And of course, the police and the district attorneys know the falsity of the charges that they're leveling, but they don't care. There's no consequence to them. And they can use the power that they have and the authority they have and abuse that authority. And what we saw in Denver is a prime example of that. What we're seeing going on in Denver right now is a complete example of it. Even to the fact that they held these three people for seven days in these COVID jails while everyone else who's cycling in is being taken for bond hearings because you are obligated when you arrest someone to present them before a judge. And they refused to do it. They were clearly dragging it out. And they were doing this because they wanted to send a message. But, you know, as I said at the beginning, this effort to try and quash a movement or scare a movement, it isn't working. And While, yes, it has an impact, and yes, it is trying to send a message to people that if you dare speak out and if you dare challenge authority and you dare demand justice, you know, we're going to punish you. You are risking being criminalized. You are risking physical brutality. And yet at the same time, people keep coming out. It's like the attack in Lafayette Park on June 1st from the Trump administration and the MPD and these attacks that we keep seeing in Washington. I mean, they thought that that vicious attack uh, on journalists and on, on demonstrators and on people who were just in the vicinity would really have the impact of scaring people. And in fact, the next day, more and more people came out. And the day after that, more and more people come out. And, and people are joining together from all walks of life because so many people are engaging in demonstration activity and in the justice movement, millions of whom had never engaged in protest activities before, but are recognizing right now that they want to stand up and they want to make common cause with other people and fight back. And that really is heartening. So while we feel the struggle and see the struggle and experience the struggle, we also know at the same time that the movement is really powerful, that the people are extraordinarily powerful and they're not retreating. You know, the last two questions I want to ask you just relate to you being an expert on constitutional law and, you know, human rights law. Because as you know, you know, the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg will lie in state at the Capitol beginning today on Friday, September 25th. 
and uh, Justice Ginsburg did vote to uphold voting rights and wrote powerful dissents in Bush v. Gore and in the Citizens United case, but apparently she had a mixed record on upholding tribal rights of Native Americans, which have been at the forefront of some of today's movements for environmental justice. So I'm wondering, you know, does her, how does her legacy on the court impact those protest movements, the rights of protesters, especially those who might interact with the police or, or, you know, or might be taken into custody by the police. You know, I was looking on your website and I saw this month, you have a case, a civil rights class action case on behalf of the water protectors at Standing Rock. So I was wondering if, if there were any, in, any kind of connections between the ways that she ruled and some of these protest movements. Well, it's interesting when it comes to First Amendment issues, because we often see rulings coming from the right and the, you know, center left of the bench. There isn't really a left on the bench that uphold First Amendment rights. It, it, it kind of crosses back and forth because there's often a recognition that when the state or the government has extraordinary power, it can be used against anyone's voice regardless of their position. But I think the thing that's on a lot of people's minds right now, and justifiably so, is really this question of, you know, how can it be that when one person passes away, hundreds of millions of people's rights change, or the laws regarding those rights change based on a single individual or a single appointment to the court? And it's, it's something that's very troubling for many people, and rightly so, because when we think about democracy and we think about protecting our rights, and at the same time, we have a system where we're allowing this, you know, nine people to make these decisions, and you can have someone like Trump put uh, people on the bench who are going to be there for decades and impacting laws for decades regardless of the tenor or consciousness of our society or where society moves to in terms of our understanding and acceptance and absolute need to have liberation and equality. I do remember uh, back when Bernie Sanders was still campaigning, he made an interesting suggestion around the ability to reassign judges. I haven't really heard it picked up by many more people, but I always remember it because it kind of gave me hope because when I look at the court, it seems very depressing and very disturbing. As I think that's the word you used. And it was just a way of uh, basically cycling in judges so that they would you know, maybe be on a circuit court or something like that, and other people could sit on the Supreme Court. And maybe that's something that can happen that will allow the court to get from under this grip of um, uh, the grip that it's in right now. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, a lot of people who sort of study the court and, and discuss the court, I mean, there is this discussion about lifetime appointments and whether that really is a foundational uh, element to democracy or not, whether or not, in fact, there should be term appointments and a shift in the court on a more regular basis. You know, that's one of those proposals. But there's so many different elements of our society, you know, that we think things are written in stone and they're really not. And they don't have to be when it comes to issues of fundamental democracy. I mean, even when, it, you know, we're looking at the election and people are in a position of the, who do you vote for? Do you, what is the lesser evil? 
when we could have a society where we're having ranked choice voting, where people could actually vote for the person that they like the most, and you go through a democratic process and the votes, you know, whittle down rather than just this endless presentation of really the winner-take-all two-party system that really doesn't allow for a lot of different voices and different views or even representative democracy because we don't have a parliamentary system. So finally, I, I want to just touch back on Denver and ask you how this case fits into the old overall atmosphere for activists. You, you've already touched on some of that again already, but Attorney General William Barr has made the statement that sedition charges should be brought against what he calls violent protesters. And this is during a time when street protests and protesters are being targeted and demonized in general by the right. You know, at the same time, activists I've spoken to on this show say that mass protests in the streets is really the key way right now to halt the further march, you know, toward fascism and authoritarianism, not just by the Trump administration, but in general. So it seems like we're in a very fraught time and activists seem to just be in the crosshairs. I think that that's, you know, it's true in terms of the feeling of activists being in the crosshairs, but people are in the crosshairs in as much as they, the people of the United States and the movement is so central to what's happening right now. It's the driving force for change and it's impacting so much. And that's why we see Barr directing the Joint Terrorism Task Force of the FBI to be investigating the social justice movement to go after, you know, what he keeps referring to Antifa as if it's a thing, like it's got a corporation and, you know, a structured head as opposed to it just being, you know, a self-identified people who are anti-fascist, which, you know, traditionally people generally wanted to be anti-fascist as opposed to fascist. Right. But this constant demonization of demonstrators, this constant demonization coming from the Trump administration and from Barr, it plays completely into Trump's re-election campaign, his law and order presentation. And we certainly are very worried that we're going to see a growing crackdown of completely false charges coupled with demonization. We know that the police in Washington, D.C. have been engaging in acts that completely violate laws that were put into place as a result of our class actions including over the issue of kettling and trap and detain tactics, which are unlawful, and the constant use of less lethal, as they call them, weapons, which are really just indiscriminate weapons that are violative of people's fundamental rights because they attack everyone who's out uh, engaged in a demonstration just based on the fact that people are engaged in lawful protest activity without any individualized probable cause as to going after any one person. It's just attacking everybody. And I think we're going to see a lot more of this over the coming weeks, unfortunately. But again and again, it's it's been very clear that people are not going back inside. They're not going to be silenced because the conditions of our society are such that these aren't elective protests. These are these are protests that are necessary because people's lives depend on it. And when you reach that stage, they can't be silenced. Right. Well, I think that that's the perfect point to 
to, to leave our discussion. I've been speaking with Mara Verhayden Hilliard, a human rights and constitutional rights attorney who is executive director of the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund. Thank you, Mara. Well, thank you for having me. Mastered economics, cause you took yourself from squalor. Slave. Mastered academics, cause your grace said you were scholar. Slave. Mastered Instagram, cause you can instigate a follow. Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters. Slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Avera here with this month's expanded culture media segment. And joining me again is journalist John Jeter, former foreign correspondent for the Washington Post, two time Pulitzer Prize finalist and author of Flat Broke and the Free Market, How Globalization Fleece Working People. He joins us again from Limon, Costa Rica. Welcome back to the show, John. Thank you for having me, Esther. Well, I want to start with a few media headlines. Of course, we've been covering the extradition trial of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange ongoing in London. The rest of my headlines come from the Gray Zone Project, and journalist Ben Norton has been doing a lot of reporting. This week, he revealed how leaked documents show how UK government contractors developed a very advanced infrastructure of propaganda to stimulate support in the West for serious political and armed opposition. This is a quote, virtually every aspect of the Syrian opposition was cultivated and marketed by Western government-backed public relations firms, from their political narratives to their branding, from what they said to where they said it. The leaked files reveal how Western intelligence cutouts played the media like a fiddle, carefully crafting English and Arabic language media coverage of the war on Syria to churn out a constant stream of pro-opposition coverage. Also this month, the Gray Zone reported on a similar public relations strategy coming out of Washington. This company is CLS Strategies, and they signed a contract to represent Bolivia's far-right junta and provide strategic communications council in the lead-up to that country's ostensible election. And after coming to power through a U.S.-backed military coup in November 2019, And the article goes on to talk about how the same group CLS Strategies has pushed propaganda for Juan Guaido of Venezuela, 
and how it's made up of these former government officials like Mark Firestein, who oversaw Latin America policy for the Obama White House, and another senior advisor, David Romley, worked as a Pentagon spokesman, a press attache for the Secretary of Defense, and public affairs officer for the U.S. Marine Corps. And finally, the one of the co-founders of CLS is Peter Schechter, also the founding director of the Latin America Center at the major Washington think tank, the Atlantic Council. And I think we've talked about them and their role with Facebook. So other than that, uh, Max Blumenthal did this awesome story about how one of the expert sources always cited for stories about Hong Kong, anti-China, you know, Hong Kong coverage. Uh, one of the sources was a person named Kong Sung Gan. And I don't know if I'm saying it right. I'm, I apologize. And how this person cited on by numerous media outlets turned out to be really an American named Brian Kern, a white man masquerading on the internet as Chinese. And this person has been quoted as a yeah, Hong Kong dissonant uh, throughout corporate media. And then finally, I wanted to mention that Wikipedia, the Internet Encyclopedia, is censoring independent news websites and adding them to an official blacklist of taboo, deprecated media outlets. So they've added the gray zone to this list. And they've also included Mint Press, the Latin American news broadcaster Telesur. And Blumenthal wrote that the campaign to blacklist the gray zone was initiated by Wikipedia editors who identify as Venezuelans and openly support the country's right-wing U.S.-backed opposition. So those are some headlines that I, I definitely wanted to include because, you know, we, we definitely want to give light to these stories that I don't think anybody else is talking about. So what do you have for media this for this month? Well, Esther, for me, the story that has really caught my attention is the Julian Assange extradition trial in London, which has been ongoing. I believe it's wrapping up. And of course, the United States has accused Julian Assange of espionage. This is stunning to me, really astonishing, because of course, what Julian Assange did was he was acting as a journalist a reporter gathering news on state crimes, publishing evidence of state crimes as the editor of WikiLeaks. What the United States is now saying is that that is tantamount to espionage. This, of course, has long been protected by the First Amendment. And so what has really sort of caught my attention is not the story itself, which I guess in some ways is predictable. We know that the United States has had an axe to grind against Julian Assange for the last decade. But what's astonishing to me is the lack of coverage about this turn. I mean, this is, if the United States is successful, if they do extradite him, if they are successful in charging him with espionage, this, of course, undermines the very precepts of investigative journalism. In other words, Woodward and Bernstein would have gone to jail for Watergate for just for reporting on state crime. So this is an extraordinary uh, turn of events. And what's most extraordinary is the lack of coverage. Uh, the New York Times, from what I've seen, has not covered the extradition trial, nor the issues that are at its heart. And, uh, you know, I find this very 
symptomatic of an empire that has reached sort of the dark ages. We've read it to sort of the dark ages where all of our sort of knowledge production is tied to our politics, right? It's all subordinate to our politics, to our efforts to sustain the empire as it's on its dying legs. You know, this is a big story. It is a big story that the United States would even attempt this. It's an even bigger story that the mainstream news media is not running around with its hair on fire, as I would be had I had any, if I had any hair. So, you know, this has been my preoccupation for the last few weeks. Wow. Well, as it should be, and I think that it should be the preoccupation of any thinking journalist. And um, it's sad that you're in the minority. I know that we have engaged in certain discussions on social media where we have uh, people in corporate media saying, you know, Julian Assange is not a journalist. So when we have that type of attitude, then I don't know, people, we have a me, we have a corporate media ignoring climate change, you know, an existential crisis. So, so much of this, these discussions just revolve around holding on to your own perceptions of, of what is sane, you know? Right. For my story, I wanted to throw this out and get your thoughts. So a lot of corporate media has been very disturbed at the fact that they can't turn the Trump base against him, right? That right. he has a very firm base that has not left him. He's joked that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and they would not turn against him. And when it comes to reporting on this very serious pandemic, you know, we just passed this grim milestone of 200,000 dead. You still hear corporate media figures like Chuck Todd get on and saying, you know, we don't understand why the base isn't leaving him with all these people dead. And, you know, the thing is, I maintain that the fact that outlets like MSNBC and much of the corporate media spent so much of the last four years on these failed projects, Russiagate followed by Ukraine Gate, where Trump has been exonerated by the Mueller report. And then Mueller basically said, well, no, there was no collusion. The fact that they spent their whole capital on an impeachment that was not successful, that focused on an issue involving Ukraine that most people didn't even understand, instead of focusing on very concrete things that people can understand, like the emoluments clause, you're not supposed to make money, especially from foreign governments while you're in office, you're not supposed to put the American people at risk like through business decisions, just benefiting your friends in the fossil fuel industry, just so many things that they could have chosen, but they chose these other things. So my feeling is that that is why when they start reporting on the seriousness of the pandemic and what Trump has done to basically bring this country to this point that nobody believes them. It's almost like that, that story that was told to us as children that you tell so many stories, lies, or whatever, that when you're serious, no one believes you. Um, right, is it right. the sky is falling? I'm trying to remember which one is it, like Chicken Little? Uh, I, or... yeah, Chicken Little, right, right. right. <laughs> it's like, you know, the story is the one where you keep saying the sky is falling, 
And then once it finally is falling, I guess nobody is like listening to nobody's listening to you at all. So I wanted to just get your thoughts on that whole idea of the media basically losing its credibility, uh, the so-called liberal media, corporate media losing its credibility. I mean, Fox has its own separate set of problems and we're certainly not defending Trump. You know, he's a loathsome character, uh, a liar. Uh, but, um, what is, what has the, the corporate media been doing for the past four years, but not, um, telling its own lies? Well, you, you know, we, we, you know, we, we, we talk about this all the time, Esther, but the, you know, the news media in the United States has never even been good. It's never even risen to that level, but at its best, it has done actual reporting. In other words, asking people what's on their mind, what's going on in their communities from reporting from the ground up as opposed to top down. Uh, and that's what we're seeing now. It's not uh, a democratic exercise trying to inform people on what their neighbors are up to, what their neighbors are concerned about. It's, a, it's an authoritarian exercise trying to tell people what to think. Let me just read this very quickly, if I can, Esther, because I think it gets to your point so very succinctly. Just one sentence from uh, Susan Rice, the former ambassador of the United Nations, and she was the national security advisor. Director. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and she wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, I guess it was published two or three days ago. I just want to read one sentence because I think it speaks to what you're saying. She writes, traditional definitions of national security center largely on external military threats to U.S. sovereignty and territorial integrity posed by hostile states like the former Soviet Union. And see, this is absurd. I, I would not call myself a, a booster of Russia or the former Soviet Union, right? But what I can say objectively, factually, is that under the Obama administration, the United States and NATO compiled more weaponry on the Russian border than at any time since the Third Reich. This is a fact. This is not my opinion, right? And so they're trying to tell us what to think. And it's backfiring. Like you say, they have no credibility. They're not, people don't believe them. And, and this is what's really dangerous, I believe. It's both the right and the left, right? So you've got Trump supporters who don't believe them because they have uh, spun this narrative about Russian interference and Russia uh, ginning up racial tensions in the United States. And the left finds that ridiculous when people like, young people like Breonna Taylor are being murdered in their beds, right? And you're talking about Russia is jetting up racial tension. This is ridiculous. I mean, this is just absurd. It's, all of our institutions lack credibility now. Labor unions, the media, Congress, the White House. There are no institutions in the United States which Americans believe in. And this spells really a whole lot of trouble. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, here with John Jeter for this month's expanded segment on culture and media. And John, my piece I have uh, for, for culture this month is really on history. On Thursday, September 17th, at the White House Conference on American History, uh, right-wing historians took aim at the Zen Education Project. And... Uh, the author Howard Zinn, one of our favorite authors, author of the landmark book, The People's History of the United States, and also took aim at the New York Times uh, 1619 Project, 
I have a little clip that has a bit of Trump, but also has Howard Zinn talking about the importance of real history. I believe you should be honest with kids at any age. You may tell them the story differently and more simply, but I don't, I don't think you should tell them uh, untruths, whether it's about Columbus or about George Washington. Our children are instructed from propaganda tracks like those of Howard Zinn that try to make students ashamed of their own history. The heroes are military heroes. When you look at the statues, right, the statues on our city squares are, are the statues of military heroes, you see. Uh, and I think we ought to uh, examine that premise that our great heroes are military heroes in war and, and look at other heroes. Young people want icons and they want people they can admire and respect and look up to. And, and so military heroes fill the bill. But there are other heroes that young people can look up to. And they can look up people who are against war. They can have Mark Twain as a hero who spoke out against the Philippines War. They can have Helen Keller as a hero who spoke out against World War I and Emma Goldman as a hero. They can have Fannie Lou Hamer as a, as a hero and Bob Moses as a hero. The people in the civil rights, they are, they are heroes. They can have Ron Kovic as a hero, the Vietnam veteran who came back and then opposed the war. We have so many heroes. There's Muhammad Ali who refused to fight in Vietnam. How better a hero can you have than him? So there, there are, I think, there are ways of satisfying the young people's need for uh, icons, for models, for people who protested and people who fought for uh, equality and justice and won. I can't think of anything more important we can do in education than, than to get students to challenge these fundamental premises which keep us inside a certain box and, and we want people to think outside of that because if they don't things will ever never change if they don't think outside that box if they don't challenge the premises then we'll go on as we have been going on and then we'll have the kind of world <laughs> that we have had so far which is not good enough right <laughs> a world of war and and hunger and disease and inequality and racism and sexism we don't know we want to move away from that and so we have to re-examine, you know, these premises. Okay, so that was the voice of Howard Zinn, uh, the late Howard Zinn, you know, talking about this very issue of history and facts and how we not only recognize history, but how we teach our children. And I should add that audio we played is from a video produced by our friends at the Zen Ed Project. And that was actually re obviously recorded some time ago, but it was a tremendous response to this attack by Trump and his administration, uh, which is actually, from what I understand, they want to use proceeds from their hijacking of TikTok, you know, where TikTok has to pay the U.S. 
like $5 billion in taxes or something. And they want to, he wants to use that to fund a, his bogus 1776 project, which will be a counter to the 1619 project by the New York Times to basically, I suppose, rewrite history. Again. So that's, that's my, his, my uh, culture piece f- for this month. And actually, Howard Zim will have the last word on today's show because we have run out of time. I've been speaking with our media critic, John Jeter, former foreign correspondent for the Washington Post and author of a couple of books, including Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleeced Working People. He joins us from Limon, Costa Rica. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can check out all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also let us know you like the show at On the Ground Show on Facebook, Twitter, or on patreon.com. Our new podcast is On the Ground with Esther Ivarum. That's On the Ground, W, Esther Ivarum. And that's on all your podcast platforms. Our new podcast, our social media pages, and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. The music we played this hour included Mary J. Blige, Everything, and that's one of Brianna Taylor's favorite songs, and Run the Jewels, Just. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Mr. Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>